Hello and welcome to Life Without Walls with me, Caroline Drury. This is the podcast that celebrates life beyond the guardrails and shines a spotlight on stories from people who have walked the path of change. Life Without Walls is about how we navigate change, the role of creativity in that, and why how we approach change makes all the difference. I'm Caroline Drury, leadership and life coach, and every fortnight I'm interviewing a new person to hear their story of living a life without walls. On today's episode of Life Without Walls, I have a very special guest for you. Nick Turner is almost impossible to describe. He's a primary school teacher, an entrepreneur, an educational pioneer. Not only that, but Nick is also one of my oldest friends. Nick has continued to push the boundaries on learning and curiosity his whole life and has never been afraid to lead a thoughtful, challenging discussion on some of the biggest issues of our time. Graduating from the University of East Anglia, he moved to London in the mid-90s, where he founded and ran the record business Smallfish in Shoreditch for the next 10 years. Nick has talked candidly about the experience of founding a business and the demands on life for a young entrepreneur, something we'll hear more about today. At the age of 35, after a decade of running Smallfish and having started a family and wanting to spend less time rather than more at the business, Nick decided he needed to retrain. His options, he says, were to become a lawyer or a teacher. Both interesting, both requiring two key skills, being prepared and being able to deviate from the plan and think on your feet. He chose teaching and re-qualified while winding up the business slowly and embarking on a new career. So after 18 months back at university part-time and on various placements in primary schools, in 2007, aged 35, Nick became a newly qualified teacher to a class of 30 children aged eight to nine. Since then, Nick's taught in a number of different schools and educational settings. As well as being a class teacher and proud generalist, He's worked as a specialist teacher in a number of subjects, including maths, science, design technology, English and humanities. He has pioneered project-based learning in a number of environments and helped develop curricular and pedagogical models that have been used in the schools he's worked in. He describes these last 15 years of teaching as an adventure made massively worthwhile by the children. A polymath at heart, Nick is keen to make learning engaging, coherent, purposeful and linked to real world issues and concerns. And with an ongoing interest in philosophy and psychology, he recently spent two years training at the IATE as a therapeutic well-being practitioner. And so, aged 50, Nick decided to change tack and focus more deeply on his passion for child centres approaches to learning. Last year, he set up Shifted with co-founder Zek Hoban. It's an educational charity based in London that works with schools and young people who are interested in developing their design and making skills through challenging real world projects. The first time I met Nick, we were just 19, starting out at uni. For over 30 years, he's remained one of my closest friends, seeing me through some really tough times, as well as celebrating the great things life has to offer. He is one of the most intelligent, compassionate and creative people I know. So it's an absolute joy to me to share his story, his energy and his vision with you all. 
Nick Turner, thank you so much for joining me here today and welcome to Life Without Walls. Thank you, it's a pleasure. So many people wonder if they can make the transition to a new career or business and it's something that you've done more than once. So I want to start by asking you, what was it actually like to stand in front of a class of eight to nine-year-olds at the age of 35 as a newly qualified teacher? It's kind of terrifying, really, um, but also really, um, really real. And I think um, you said in the introduction, you know, lawyer or teacher, and I guess one of the lovely things about, I think both of them were really interesting because I do think, you, you know, every day I stand up in front of a class and teach, and I've done a lot of it now, I still feel before the lesson starts, like, do I know what I'm doing? Do I, have I kind of got this? But the moment you're in it, it's too late. So it's, it's a bit like, I always think the idea of stage fright, you know, someone says the moment you stop, feeling stage fright you should give up acting I think the moment you stop feeling slightly like not not scared I think as I as I've got better at it um I know that I I, I can look I can think of a lesson I can visualize it but back then I kind of I didn't really know what was going to happen I didn't really know I didn't really know what I was meant to, to do mm. and that that sounds sort of silly I'd done all this training I was I was a, a newly qualified teacher you know I'd been given a sort of a, a license to stand in front of a class but you don't really know what you're meant to do so you're 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 feeling it out with the people in front of you and I guess that's what's so so great about it is that you are getting a response you know, if you if you're talking to 30 kids and you're asking them to talk and engage, you can read the room so quickly when you're we certainly know when you've lost them. Mm. But you also know when you're losing them or whether things are. So you're you're making all these decisions. And what I love about it is it's, it's in real time. Yeah. So all the preparation, you know, the moment the moment they, they and the lovely thing about primary school is it's not just preparation for one lesson it's preparation for the whole day, five to nine. You need to be on your feet and driving mm -hmm. until break. Then you do it again until lunch. And then you, so you've only got three pauses in the day. Um, so, yeah, I was scared. But once it, it, it again, the curtain came up and I wasn't scared anymore. I was just there. Yeah. And I know you're a teacher who many of the children you taught remember for all the best reasons. And you've talked about how for the most part over the last 15 years, you did largely what you thought was right and towed the line in the schools you taught at while doing your own thing. Can you tell us a bit about your expectations about becoming a teacher and the reality that you were met with? I guess the, the thing that was most, that struck me most was I've always been really interested in things. I read a lot of books. I'm curious and I kind of want to, I want to kind of pull things apart, see how they work. I figured going from a world of running a business to a world of education, I, I figured I was going into quite an intellectual world, a world of, and I use, I, I heard this expression years ago and I like it. The idea that all teachers should be scholarly. You know, we should be setting out to know, our subject, understand child development, psychology, all of this. So I kind of felt like I was going into an environment that was going to be very, I thought lots of conversations would be 
you know, really interesting about what's going on, what's this dynamic, why is that happening, how could we change it? And I guess what was interesting, and I've worked in primary and secondary, I think primary schools tend to be much less like that than I expected them to be. Uh, there was sort of more a sense, and, and again, I think sometimes, you know, you don't need a ton of subject knowledge to teach very small people. But I think you need really good subject knowledge to teach them well, because every time you get a question, if you're only a few pages ahead of the textbook, mm -hmm. you know, if you're teaching a subject like the Vikings and you know nothing about the Vikings, they ask you a question and, you you know, you're, you're a few pages ahead of the kids. You can't give them a considered answer. You can't kind of try and or ask them another question or try to sort of steer them into thinking about sort of big picture stuff. Because I think what we're always doing is we're always going from micro to macro. I think we do it all the time as people. So, yeah. So um, the other thing that was quite funny was I, you know, I arrived, I was 35. I'd run a business. I'd employed a lot of people. But you become the cabin boy. Well, in my situation, I was the cabin boy um, where you're the you're the least experienced person in the environment. But it doesn't mean that you are the least competent. So the other thing that really surprised me about education was how hierarchical it was. So I figured that, you know, coming in a bit older and, you know, I, I didn't want to come in and I certainly didn't, I didn't think I knew it all at all, but I knew some things and I had some experience and it, it was quite surprising to me how quickly I realized in education there was this very strict sort of hierarchy that, you know, if you were the head teacher, you had, you know, you had certain discussions behind closed doors. And I guess I thought it'd be a much more democratic environment. And, you know, primary schools are small places that with, I worked in single form entry primary schools, yeah. small, small numbers of staff. So you kind of figure, I figured it would be a much more collaborative and collective thing that it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, very interesting, which, which sort of leads me to pick up on that point of curiosity that you talked about, you know, and that, that interest and that scholarliness, because let's just turn the clock back for a moment to your earliest years were spent in London before you moved as a family to Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. And then following a stint of travel, you headed to the U University of East Anglia, where you studied development studies. And you've talked yeah. about that time as a really formative era of life where it was the early 90s and we were discussing issues of sustainability, social justice, environmentalism, public policy, the market, welfare state, and they're conversations that you continue to have today. Yeah. I wonder how much that outlook, that upbringing, that experience of education influenced your decision to retrain as a teacher after Smallfish. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Weirdly, I did I did this degree in development studies, and there were very few people, very few places doing it. And I, and I, I don't. I sort of felt like it uh, it appealed to my sense of trying to find out what the world was like. So it was, you know, it was a kind of classic jack of all trades degree. And then years later, I would say to people, "Well, I did a degree in development studies, which was probably the best degree I could have done to become a teacher." And I, you know, I, I'd sort of say that slightly flippantly, but I think actually, in a way, it really was, it gave me a really good kind of grounding in sort of the world. Mm -hmm. But then if I think about my, I mean, I, I, if someone had asked me age 16, if somebody told me you're going to be a teacher, I would have sworn at them. I would have laughed. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were, they were kind of as, 
I think I I had a lot of respect for some of my teachers, but I didn't like school. I felt like it was a very, it was a really sort of undemocratic environment. And I think, I mean, something I've become obsessed with, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have gone on in my trip through education and to where I am now that I think are to do with this, which is this notion of consent. And I think it again comes back to this notion of rank that I was talking about in schools, that if you've got, if you're a three-star general, you can do anything and say anything. And if you're a private, you just have to suck it up and do it. No, no matter, no matter whether you agree with it or not. And, and I think that the idea of consent really didn't exist when I was at school. You know, I, I felt, and I felt very kind of, it was almost the idea that you had a voice, but it was, it, people could just shut you down. And I guess what I've tried to do in education is to, and again, I've had lots of conversations with people about this because I've met people who say that, you know, prisoner is synonymous with, uh, a teacher is synonymous with the word sort of jailer. And that the idea that what you do is you fundamentally do bad things to kids because they're in a non-consensual environment. And I always used to, used to say to kids, you know, I can't be a Democrat. It's it, because you have to be here and I have to be here. But the best I can do is an enlightened dictatorship. And what that means is I can hear your voice and I can give you as much voice and as much say as I can within the boundary that, that has been set. And I guess, you know, that, that's been really important to me. And um, so, you know, go, I'm not sure I've answered your question, but going back to East Anglia, I think, um, you know, development studies was really about power relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think those have been things that have really fascinated me. And, you know, I do, you know, I do think I have been a force for good in education, but I think I've increasingly found the structures, you know, I mean, I'm doing some part-time work at the moment. And if you want to go to the loo in the school, you need a toilet pass. Mm -hmm. This is a secondary school. So, and I joke and I say to the kids, when did we enter a world where, you know, in order to, you know, empty your bladder, you need, you need to be given a badge so when you're walking through the corridor you're not kind of you know so you can go no no it's all right I've got to pass and I just find that I mean on one level that's just utterly extraordinary and on another level it's really practical stops kids wandering around the corridors but it sits uneasily with me yeah yeah which sort of so if we think about those days at Smallfish and where you had complete freedom you know you went from complete freedom or seemingly so into this very structured environment but Smallfish was the business that you founded you ran it in the 90s and you said recently that you wish you'd been more able to stand back from it all uh, and reflect more during the time of running it and that with hindsight you wish you'd been able to be braver and more willing to change direction. A lot of people I meet are wanting to set up a business um, what did that experience teach you about building your own business? I, I guess, I, I mean, I, I think there's a number of things in there. The, the first thing I should say is that I did it on my own. And I think if I'd done it with other people, it might have had a very different traje- trajectory. Because I think somewhere being on your own is very lonely. And I, I kind of see small fish, like I kind of created this this thing, this organism, if you like, and I think when you I sort of smiled when you said that you were free to do what you liked, because in a way I created an organism that had 
a certain amount of inputs and a certain amount of outputs. And it had, uh, it, there was always more to do. And I guess I didn't, when I say I wish I'd been more reflective, I wish I'd been able to occasionally stop feeding this beast that I'd made because in a sense, the more records and CDs I bought, the more I had to sell. And we do, you know, we, we, we were kind of good at what we did, but we, we, it felt a little bit like that whole kind of red queen thing. You run as fast as you can to stay in the same spot. And I think that when I talk about being more reflective, I, I, I laugh at, you know, I watched the Spotify, um, uh series recently that i really recommend it's a sort of six part actually a friend of mine wrote it so it's another reason i recommend it um that is on netflix and and that happened seven or eight years after we set up small fish and i remember having conversations in the late 90s early 2000s about how ridiculous it was to sell a cd a physical copy of a digital product so vinyl, I understood it was an analog product. You needed to have an analog thing. But I was like, well, why are we selling bits of plastic with sort of data on them? And then you think seven or eight years later, Spotify starts, or the world is very different. We end up with iPhones and streaming. So I think that we were, we were really having some of these conversations. We were really thinking about the way we consume things. But I didn't do anything. I mean, you know, we did did a couple of radio shows. We had, you know, we were quite we were quite radical in our own way in that we played samples of music for everything that we sold. But the idea of not selling more records and CDs every day mm. never occurred to me because that's what you did. As long as I sold a couple of thousand quid's worth of stock every day, then I could pay for the next amount of stock and I could pay for my staff and I could do all of that. So you kind of end up just feeding this beast. And, and of course, it's a beast that you make. Mm. But I, I guess, um, and this is where it comes back to having another person with me. I wish that, you know, when you run a business, you know, when you're giving out Christmas bonuses and you're paying everyone, you know, everyone loves you. And when you're cracking the whip and saying, look, you know, we, you know, we, we, we can't, we can't, you know, we've all got to work harder. Everyone grumbles. And I never, I never had someone to, to, to bounce ideas off. And again, I think you always have to be the emotionally strong one. And I was too young. I was, you know, I was, I, I was in my, you know, I, I was in my late twenties when I set it up. And I think probably I needed a lot of recognition. I sort of joke that I, you know, I, I sort of felt like I was, I was more interested in being liked than respected by a lot of the people who worked for me. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff going on. But but also once you've got this mission, we buy and we sell music. And as long as we, you know, as long as we sell the music we buy, then, you know, we're still in business. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish I'd stopped and scratched my chin and, you know, even just taken some time out. But I was, you know, I was obsessed because, again, I mean, everybody says if, you know, if you don't say if I didn't sell a record for 10 days, so if nobody come into the shop or done the mail order for 10 days, yeah. we were bust. We were done. Yeah. You know, so so you've got very little opportunity to 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 breathe. And I think, yeah, I I small fish eventually ran me rather than me running small fish. Um so it's time to get off, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean that 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 idea of very, very narrow margins that means that you can't put yourself where you know you need to put yourself is I'm sure why so many businesses go under because they just don't have that space to yeah. actually think through the strategy but you know times are different now you've set up the educational strategy um charity shifted 
and it's a transition away from teaching in the way that you were doing it. Tell us about where the inspiration came from for Shifted and what the charity aims to achieve. Um, I guess I always wanted to, I think often we don't, do you know the, the, the idea of the Overton window? The, the acceptable so the overton window is the acceptable window that you can talk about things so if you go into a staff meeting in a school if you say well what are we all doing here what's education about people go oh shut up you know we've we've, we've got we've got this thing to do um and i was i'm always really interested in that and so my my kind of my stock answer is i think what we do is we try and help people make sense of who they are and we try and help them make sense of the world. And then the kind of the important bit is we try and work out how those two things interact with each other. So how do I fit into the world? Now, in a way, that's kind of quite a philosophical question. And uh, and I think we're doing that all the time. We're in relationship with people. And I guess um, I felt like it was it was really hard to... I'll give you an, an, an analogy. So when I first started teaching, if someone said, oh, Mr. Turner, this is really boring, I'd go, well, Thierry Henry, because I'm Arsenal and I've worked in areas that are, are Arsenal. I was like, Thierry Henry, if you think about it, when he's doing drills, you know, they might be a bit boring, but he does all of this because, you know, when he gets to the game, you know, it's going to, you know. Uh, now I go, yeah, it is a bit boring, isn't it? But we'll do something more interesting later. Uh, and I kind of felt like, I didn't want to dress things up. I wanted to say this, this is what it is. And, and I guess a lot of school is dull. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, I talk a lot about the idea of whether something is relational or transactional. Mm -hmm. And I think even, I mean, I've only been teaching really, I sort of started in 2005 and I qualified in 2007. So I've, I've not, I, I've not done very much. I've done 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite a lot, but I still feel like that, that, you know, I've met people who are far, far wiser and far, you know, who've got so much more experience of it. Um, but I, uh, it feels as though it's become more transactional. It's, you know, I mean, my own children have done GCSEs and A-levels or GCSEs and A-levels. And I, I asked them a the question, they say, this is a six marker. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. They're like, it's a six marker, dad. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And, and then I'm like, oh, right, okay, it's got six marks. And I'm like, okay, so we've probably got to make six points. So when we make six points, they go, right, done. I'm like, well, what about, let's talk about seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And, and they're like, no, 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 I finished it. And I guess I was always trying to get people to think about the world in terms of not as a trans. I don't go in, I don't exchange knowledge for points and points for, I mean, obviously that's the world we live in. You know, there, there is a, you know, you, you in order to open doors, you need to kind of go through, certain levels but i just felt like i don't know i just felt like i think you said in the introduction that you know i you have to do your job and then you do the other stuff as well i would almost argue that a teacher is paid to deliver content mm -hmm. but actually that's the easiest thing you do really what you do is you're in relationship you're using pedagogy and I, if you're thinking about the content when you're teaching it you're probably not teaching because you just you know you're spending too much energy on the content and it felt like all the important stuff, the relationships, the pedagogy was sort of being slightly crowded out by the idea of content. So, and, and, you know, I've been very lucky. So I'm, I've been, you know, I've been quite good at my job so I can do all of that. But the moment I, the moment the kids weren't getting the results, then people would have come down on me like a ton of bricks. 
So I sort of felt the transactional relational thing was kind of going out of balance. And then the other thing that I find really interesting is the idea that I think we spend a lot of time living in our heads. So we ask, we, we say to ourselves, if I were to do that, and I'm always like, well, yeah, but that's sort of really abstract. We, and, and I do think we spend an awful lot of time in an, in a, in a fairly abstracted state. So I've always been really interested in making things and uh, sort of doing things where, you know, where, where you get into a state where you're no longer, you don't have all this kind of residual information in the back of your head. You're actually present doing something. So I, uh, I was in a school, I set up a DT department and I was doing a lot of making with the kids and I would genuinely have kids say to me, they'd hold something up and they go, this is the best thing I've ever done. And I have this idea that what happens is, so you take something like self-esteem. Now, the technical term is it, it's, it is disembedded. So if you feel self-esteem in the workshop, it can be disembedded from the workshop and go into the other classroom. I just think it leaks. I think it leaks into all aspects of your life. So if you work at something, and I think making things is, again, there's a really, I, I think it's a kind of a useful analogy, which is if you if you set someone a task of climbing a mountain, you've got a choice of giving them a map or not giving them a map. If you don't give them a map, they will make lots of false moves. They'll find a cliff, they'll find a bog, they'll you know find an impassable forest. Uh, but eventually they'll get to the top of the mountain. And if you then ask them what's the best route up the mountain, they won't necessarily be able to tell you the best route, but they'll be able to tell you a route that they discovered. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think the making is a much more sort of zigzag process. Because what you're doing is you think you're, something's going to turn out the way it is, and then it's slightly different. So then you think, okay, well, I've got to now adapt that. Mm. But I think what often happens in schools is we just give people a map and we say, and you're like, well, what's the object of the exercise? Is the object of the exercise to learn to be a mountaineer or learn to read a map? And I think that the making process does something quite interesting. So again, there's a lot of a lot of people, you know, we talk about blue collar and white collar in this country. And it's ridiculous because I think some of the, some of the, most intense thinking I do is around when I'm making something. Now it's a different sort of thinking than, than than ideas, but I think there's something. But there's but there's also something really deeply human. So this is the best thing I've ever done, and seeing somebody really light up with that, and you think, okay, well, and again, the arts, making, design, have all been crowded out of the curriculum. Uh, and I so I mean I you know 2005 to 2023. I've had I've got less autonomy as a teacher. It's more prescriptive. Uh, there's more focus on these core subjects. Uh, and I guess, you know, I think that we learn things in all sorts of different ways. And the, the, the process of making is it's psychologically appealing. I think it's emotionally appealing. And, and yeah, I mean, I could I could bang on for the whole time about why I think we should all make things. Yeah. So um, so as a result, Shifted has been born. And what's it like? Who's it aimed at? What's what's its scope? What are you? Where are you going with it? Well, I got I had a really good good question from somebody. So we're fundraising at the moment, and a, and a potential funder said, "Well, what's your long term plan? Five years, ten years?" Now, I said, "Oh God, you know, I just want to get one." So what we want to do is we want to get one workshop set up. Now, initially, it'll be one workshop. Then we want to have two workshops and a digital design suite. But we will be a, a physical analog place where people, so primary school kids will come during their school day, much like they go to the swimming pool. 
you go to the swimming pool, specialist facilities, specialist teachers, ex certain, you know, uh, uh, expertise. Come to the makerspace and come and do a project with us. Now, the other thing that we do is we're really into this idea of little and often. I think there's a lot of there's been a lot of jazz hands around the arts recently. So somebody will come into a school, everyone will go off timetable, we'll have this whole day, and then we go back to normal life, which is often quite dull. So we're trying to do it little and often, come once a week. So the idea is you come once a week for probably two hours. We haven't kind of it's all kids have got to walk to 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 the space. Um and I should mention that we're setting that this is all in in progress at the moment i've done a pilot i've worked in some schools so i've got lots of kind of lots of evidence but people come to us they'll do a project over 10 weeks so they'll and, and the idea is that they'll have a way where we give them time to explore because again i think my one of my least favorite words in the world is efficiency because i think efficiency is almost it can be now obviously i, I think oliver berkman um who wrote 4,000 Weeks. I don't know if you, it's, it's a really, I really recommend it. It's kind of philosophy, but it's also kind of practical. He says, he's also slightly rages against efficiency. He says, if it takes you half an hour to find your socks, you need to work on your efficiency. If it takes you 20 minutes to find the folder on your computer that you're working on, you need to work on your efficiency. But I think that what, what happens is we say often, well, if we were to give you all this time to explore, you might come up with the best sort of material to use for this and then we go oh we haven't got enough time so if you were if you would have done that you would have come up with material x so we'll use that so what we're trying to do is we we have this sort of cycle so you explore we 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 deliberately give you time to mess around and to explore and to go how does this work um then you plan then you act then you reflect and we're very much into this idea of an iterative process so you know, uh, there's, uh, again, another thing in schools that um, very often it's just one draft. You just do one draft of things. Now, something I did years ago, and again, from various different educational influences, was I got into the idea that, you know, we do multiple drafts. We, we, we improve what we do. We're not, you know, I mean, I, I can't write a two-line email without scanning it. Oh, does that read right? You know, and so the idea that everything is done as a first draft and a last draft, I think is a disaster because it, it almost implies that it's not really, it's not, it's not valuable enough to do it again. Mm. So again, I find it really interesting in the workshop when you say to kids, you know, you, they've built something and you're like, mm, okay, so what's going, well, this isn't working. Okay. We're going to have to disassemble it. And they're like, Oh my God, we can't disassemble it. Cause if we disassemble it, we're going backwards. And you're like, we're constantly going forwards and backwards because the idea. So, again, the object of the exercise is not to finish. Mm -hmm. The object of the exercise is to produce something of value. And again, that that doesn't sound those two. Those two outcomes don't sound that different. But I think they're I think they're properly radical in an educational context. Yeah. So um, which which leads me on to, you know, the, the burning question of what is it? that you think needs to happen in education to inspire children with the skills that they need to navigate this very uncertain world that we find ourselves in? God, I wish I knew. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, it's really interesting. The word you use, uncertain, I think is really key. So I'd go back to this idea of being in relationship. I, I, I would say that I have peddled intellectual uncertainty. I've kind of shouted it from the rooftops to the kids I've taught. Mm. 
Now, I think some people find that quite threatening, but I think I've done it in the context of also kind of creating a degree. Now, I, I don't want to use the word certainty, but I'm going to because I think it's the, the opposite of uncertainty. But the idea that you provide an emotional, an emotionally certain environment. Yeah. In other words, the idea that I've got your back. Yeah. I'm, here to, I'm here to support you. Because I think the difficulty, I think uncertainty is beautiful, mm. but it's also quite frightening. Mm. So I think, and, and I think what we often do is that, you know, we, we kind of want, I, I would argue that we want emotional security. So we want to, we want to, we want to, we want to be kind of in an, in an environment where we feel safe enough to make mistakes, mm. to try things out and to know that there's a, there's a, there's a no blame culture as well. Mm. So, you know, I, I think it, it if what do I what what do I think schools need to need to do better I think they need to allow children to be children better mm -hmm. so because I think what we've done is we've made the stakes quite high mm -hmm. but then we've conversely we've kind of infantilized them so we've so I, I sort of feel like we're doing this and we need to sort of do that and embrace their child and embrace them being children and learning mm -hmm. um but empower them as well yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, what does that look like? I, I don't quite know, but I would argue that, you know, coming back to being a teacher, I've spent huge amounts of time reading about psychology, learning about psychology, going on courses. I'm married to a psychologist, which helps. She's very wise and she sort of, you know, we have lots of discussions. She works with um, young people, not children. So she works in, in, in further education. But our conversations are all, always really the same. It's about how do we kind of, how do we, get people to be i guess i'd say um do you know about attachment theory the idea of whether you i guess what you know we need to create environments where people can feel that there's that, that, that you know that that whether you're a teacher whether you're a mentor whether you're you know that that, that you're that you're providing a secure base for them. But I also think that we are often insecurely attached to ourselves. Mm. And that's kind of quite meta. But I think that is, is really helped by having someone alongside you to, to, to be like, it's okay. Um, and I think, I mean, the, the evidence seems to be that if people, so people talk about sort of safe spaces and actually when people feel psychologically safe the evidence seems to be whether it's a school an institution a business whatever it might be that's when people thrive because actually that's when people feel you know your amygdala is switched off your inner reptile is is sleeping mm. so what you can do is you can be very human you can explore and you know i guess you know all this thing about creativity there's this current discussion about oh, ai what's it going to do now, and I would argue that it's our humanity that we that, that we kind of trade on and allowing people to to feel supported in an environment that work works for them. So what's shifted about, I guess, shifted in some ways about providing a slightly different environment. Um, schools are good at some things. They're not good at everything. So we're trying to we, we don't we, we we're not trying to we're not a silver bullet. What we're trying to say is this is part of what should be a pluralist mix of experiences that helps people learn, make sense of themselves, develop competencies, all of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's and then they're able more able to step into the world, into workplaces with that sense of self, knowing when they where they work at their best, where they don't, and you know, a bit more equipped with what they can do. And it's that point you made about uncertainty 
um, and that it can feel scary. And I mean, a lot of people who come to coaching to see me are going through major change and feel very uh, stressed and um, and like their identity is shifting whilst they're navigating this change. And I guess that's what Life Without Walls is about. It's the reason that I wanted to do it, was it to support people that are navigating these these journeys. What would you say are the opportunities that change has brought in your life, if we're going to embrace change, the idea of change, that, that change has brought in your life that couldn't have happened otherwise? Oh, um... I think I'm a lot, um, I mean, it's hard to kind of, you know, it's hard to kind of extrapolate what bits come from what, where it's all kind of, it's all mixed together. And I think age has got quite a lot to do with it as well, which, but, but I do wonder whether I'm, I'm braver. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly terrified by doing all of this because it is, you know, um, I'm good at teaching. I, I had a good job in teaching. I'd got to senior management, senior leadership level. And I'm like, well, why am I, why am I stopping doing the thing that I'm good at? And I guess um, I had a, I, I sort of had a, I, I don't know, I'm slightly answering the question in a different way, but I've really missed being in schools. And I think what I've done is I've been, I've really defended schools mm-hmm. You know, I always used to say, oh, I love teaching. I just hate education. Um, and what I was saying was that, you know, it's just annoying, but it could be, could be better. But I really miss the relationships. I really miss these sort of deep relationships in schools. And then I spent a bit of time not being in schools. And I'm now back working part-time mm-hmm. in a school. And what was interesting was I went back to this school and I sort of went, I, I don't want to be here anymore because... I don't think it squares with what I really want to do and the relationships I want to have. And I'm having lovely, I'm, you know, I'm just doing, I'm sort of doing a two day a week fill in role for a term. I'm making, you know, I'm making some good relationships with the kids. I'm having fun, but I just fundamentally don't want to be in that environment. Now I reckon giving myself the space to not be there was, was what I needed to do in order to realize that it was right for me to not be there. Cause of course the thing I'm most skilled at, is teaching Mm. and the thing i'm i'm not moving away from teaching i'm sort of moving sideways but but i think there's always that sense that we hold on to the so so the answer to my to the question of what should i do with my time is well i should do the thing that i'm the most skilled at because it gives me the most opportunity to earn money and be good at something but i guess there's a there's a sort of i mean the other thing i think has that has allowed me to do this i did therapy for quite a long time And I think I became much better at, I spoke earlier about never reflecting on small fish. Mm. I think it gave me a much better opportunity to reflect on myself and to be much better at knowing that when things were going really badly, Mm. that it would change. And I can now say to myself when I'm miserable and, you know, you're just like, what am I doing? It's not working. Rather than running back to what would be safe would be, you know, and I get emails every day, you know, about jobs that, you know, I just sort of delete them. But I haven't unsubscribed from all these lists yet. I think I will quite soon. But I think the idea that I that, that I, I can sit with the uncomfortable feelings longer than I probably could have done. Now, if I 
been doing this in small fish i think i was too much like a headless chicken and if anyone said why don't you slow down and think about it i'd be like i'm too bloody busy mm-hmm. um yeah, so yeah so 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 what's you know so i think i do feel braver for it but i do that doesn't mean i'm not scared it mm-hmm. just means that i can kind of tolerate it mm-hmm. and i guess also the uncertainty which is you know if you're peddling in uncertainty and yet what you do is you kind of always choose the path of, if not least resistance, then uh, the one that will kind of have the, the the lowest hanging fruit, you know, which would be to go back to what I what I can do, what I've done before. Um, I don't think I've answered your question. Yeah. but well, No, but it has, because the opportunity that change has presented to you is to take, to embrace taking risks rather than staying in something that wasn't making you happy is to be able to explore and part of that I can't help but feel ties back to your point about psychological safety that in certain parts of life you feel safe which enables you to stretch in other parts of life and like you say it's also but it's a journey because you haven't yet unsubscribed from those lists that are teasing you with the opportunity to just go back to how it was yeah um, and I think often when I work with people on change and they're looking to make change, we sometimes put that in place of, all right, if it doesn't work out, how do you get back to where <laughs> you are in six months time? So that's just your plan B. And yeah. that feels really freeing to people. It feels really safe. It's like, all right, I've got a backup plan. It enables me to step across that line. And that's kind of what I, what I hear you've been able to do, you know, and, and, hats off to you that actually you're enjoying this term and, and seeing what happens so i want to say one more thing quickly yeah. about that, which is i really miss the depth of the relationships that i had with the kids mm-hmm. when i was there all the time and i was a class teacher what i realized by running a pilot for small fish and uh, uh not for small fish for for shifted but and for for doing this work is that even seeing kids for two hours a week I mean, I, I'm put name stickers and everyone. They're like, oh, God, why do we have to wear our names? And I'm like, because I don't know who you are. So, you know, in three weeks, I learned over 100 names. Yeah. And, the, you know, you, you're getting that rapport you, because I think that's kind of what, what happens. But what I realized is that it's a really important, different relationship for these kids. So me coming in and doing something for two hours a week with them yeah. actually was w- 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 they could sort of reinvent themselves and they could be because again I, I think the other thing we do is we have a very kind of fixed notion of who we are and if you change the environment change the setting and change the task we can be somebody different and then we go oh well maybe I could be that person when I go back to my normal thing yes or I interrupted Absolutely. you yeah no brilliant brilliant point so if other people are going through change um, and grappling with it not necessarily finding it the easiest path to tread what would you say to them have you got any advice for them I guess the only thing I'd say is talk because I think that uh, and whether it be with someone in a professional environment like a coach or a therapist or just um I mean I talk to my my wife about it and you know sometimes we argue about it um but I talk to friends as well I've had really good advice from people who know you well and I, I guess I guess the other thing I, I, I kind of I, I kind of like to wear my heart on my sleeve and go, oh, God, what am I doing? And, you know, and, and I guess it's easy to then try and get people to reassure you that you've made the right decision. Mm. So in a way, the conversation is not actually really a conversation. What you want people to do is go, no, no, don't worry. It's a good idea. Mm. But actually, when you really talk to people and you talk things through, I think what often come what rises to the top are some of those those, those, those kind of deep things 
that are why you've made the decision in the first place. And then, I mean, I had a conversation with someone the other day and I was really, I was really down. I was really like lost. And she took me back to kind of basics, like, why are you doing this? And I realized I'm doing this because I think that the experience for these kids is really important. And what I'd spent ages, the reason I'd gone into a dark place was I was thinking all about me and shifted and how am I going to do it? And it was like, oh God, that's why I'm doing it. And and I literally, it was like this conversation where I was in a in a place where I was wading through trigger or something that's like, okay, just a little reframing. And again, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm a massive, as you can tell, I'd like to talk. And as you know, I like to talk. But I do think conversation, I, I genuinely think that most of our thoughts are pretty nebulous in our own heads. And when we speak in sentences, we have to kind of make sense of it. And it's like writers say, I only really knew what I thought once I wrote it down. I actually wonder whether we only really know what we think when we say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Not in a monologue, but in conversation. Yeah, well, I agree with that. But also, I mean, you know, I have found and many people I work with find journaling also really helps because you're having to articulate what you're thinking. This muddle that's in your head, it's starting to get a bit of order. And then when you actually speak it out loud, even more so. And I, and also that sense of purpose that you just talked about is being able to align yourself to your purpose. So when all the sort of nitty gritty gets in the way and why am I doing this and all sorts of stuff it's remembering what that that bigger point is but also the this idea of talking stuff through is for people to sometimes say are you sure about this Hmm. because we don't always go down the right path and you want certain people to be able to say you know is this really where you want to go because you can step back um, and and again, if you're trying to work that stuff out alone, it's impossible. You can't see all perspectives, and and when you're going through change, it can feel like white water. Yeah, and I think I think you know this idea of friendship, you know, is around acceptance, but it's also around is around. There's two things: there's the, who we are and what we do are so often kind of sort of conflated. And actually, a good friend will be able to kind of separate those things out or, you know, so, yeah, choose who you speak to. But the idea that and I think that's a really hard thing. And I see that in children a lot, that the idea that our identities are kind of are very much made up of of, of the things we do. And, you know, I think as adults, our status, what jobs we have, all of it, it's all it's all kind of mixed together. But actually, when you're in a genuine conversation, I mean, again, I think it's a lovely analogy. I want to do this. I'm going to do this on one of our fundraising nights. I think it's Anthony Gormley. If you get invited around for dinner to Anthony Gormley, and if Anthony Gormley, if you listen to this, please invite me to dinner. I'd love to come. (laughs) Um, I think it's him that he gives you a lump of clay on your placemat and you you have to fiddle around with the clay and do so. Now, I was thinking, well, why would you do that? And my theory is, is that the reason you do that is that we all come with scripts. We all come with baggage. And probably, and I've seen this in the workshop, if you spend sort of five minutes, you get into that flow state, you make something. And then when you look up and you've made your really bad giraffe or or whatever it might be, the chances are that the scripts you came with and all the inner narrative have, have, have gone because you focused such that you're kind of like, oh, hello, who are you? Well, what are you doing here? How do you know, Anthony? sort of thing now i wonder whether that's a really useful proxy to getting people to be genuine so we you know drop the scripts drop the baggage and i guess through talking you know that that really helps yeah, yeah. and making oh, did you see i'm plugging making as well 
I absolutely love that. Yeah, beautifully done. So I'm really excited about Shifted, about what you're doing. Um, tell us, how can people find out more, get involved? We have a website, shifted.org.uk. Um, at this point, we're fundraising. So, you know, for, we need money to do this. We're trying to make it free at the point of delivery because otherwise it just becomes, it needs to be inclusive. Everyone needs to be able to do it. But you people can, we're, we're going to be have volunteers. We're going to have people we work with and partnerships. So it's all on the website. Um, and it's early days, but we've sort of, you know, I mean, the thing I'm glad about is we're not too, you know, I think between the two of us, we've done 35 years of teaching. So it wasn't, we did a couple of years and said, nah, let's, let's reinvent the wheel. And, and we've really kind of, thought long and hard about this but i think on the website volunteer get involved there is a whole section um but yeah um right. visit the website fantastic okay so shifted.org.uk <laughs> okay. okay. yeah okay fantastic so nick you have always been an inspiration to the children that you've taught your family your friends your colleagues and you challenge the way we think you've never settled for the status quo and you continue to be what i'd call one of the most curious hope-filled skeptics that I've ever met. Um, I've really loved listening to your journey today and I learn something new every time we talk and I'm sure that you've ignited courage and tenacity and a, a sort of sense of openness to new ideas in everyone who's listening. So it's been a pleasure to have you here today, Nick. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences of life with us. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. I, I could carry on for hours. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you.